Again, we have Brother Keith Hutto, is that right? Huda, sorry, uh, coming to us this morning. Had a good time at Sunday school, so Brother Keith, thank you. Thank you, <clears throat> Brother Gary. Thank you for that beautiful music. You have excellent music here. A little orchestra, flute ensemble, pianist. It's great music, and thank you for that. <clears throat> And thank you for the privilege of having a part of your service today. Um, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Second Peter. As I mentioned in Sunday school, um, I had the opportunity to teach in in China, but I had the opportunity to, pr- to teach first in, in Mexico, where we ministered for 32 years before coming back to Colorado last August. And... Uh, God really brought home the message of Second Peter to my heart a number of years ago. There's just a powerful message for our day that I think is so helpful and encouraging and useful and necessary. Second Peter tends to be a book that I think we overlook. Maybe it's kind of a small book, and when we get back to that far in our Bible, we're kind of on the way to Revelation, which is a big, impressive book. Um, and we, maybe we tend to skip over some of those last epistles, First and Second Peter and James and First and Second, Third John and Jude. Um, someone mentioned in one of the commentaries that Second Peter is kind of in the dark corner of the New Testament because it's not studied as much as maybe Paul's epistles or the Gospels or the Book of Acts or the Book of Romans. But nevertheless, inspired by God and just as powerful in His Word as any other portion of the scripture, and the Lord really brought home the message to my heart in a number of ways, and I had the privilege then of sharing that there in China, and the Lord used his word there as well in a very uh, unique way. So I'd like to invite you to consider this this morning, um, I'd like to give just a simple overview and then a few thoughts from the third chapter of Second Peter, but first uh, beginning in, in chapter 1. Now you may you may um, you may have seen in a Bible survey class or a Bible introduction that many times the theme of this book is described as false teachers. Peter is talking about false teachers. That might be another reason why we don't go to it as often in our in our churches <clears throat> because false teachers is kind of a subject that's not too. Um, palatable maybe, or interesting, though necessary in our day. And it is true that in Second Peter, the second chapter has the largest, the longest passage about false teachers in the New Testament. We live in a day when false teachers are growing and abounding. Our, our country is turned away from largely from the truth of the gospel and is turning to New Age and to uh, all kinds of other teachings that come from other parts that seem to be new and attractive and mystical and romantic. And so many people are, are, are drawn in by Buddhism and, and even Islam in spite of its terrible fruit and devastation that it creates throughout the world. Uh, so many people are turning away to other teachings. You don't have to go far to find false teaching. 
uh, whether it's the charismatic movement, whether it's whatever other movement around, you, you can turn your radio on in your home and hear or get on the Internet and see false teaching so easily. But I really don't think that the, just the idea of false teaching is really the main theme of Second Peter. I think Peter has another message in mind. But let me just mention first about the author. You know, you know Peter from the, so many stories in the Gospels. The, the first and leader of the apostles. The one who always seemed to be opening his mouth and sticking in his foot. He seemed to be the first one to answer. Sometimes he would answer very well. Like the great the confession he made when Jesus asked the disciples, Who do men say that I am? And the disciples said, Well, some say that you are John the Baptist. Come back. Or you're one of the prophets. Maybe Jeremiah or another one of the prophets. Elijah. And then he, Jesus asked his disciples the question, But who do you say that I am? Which is the key question that every individual must answer. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became incarnate, dwelt among men, and revealed God to us. And his life, and his miracles, and his crucifixion, and his resurrection demand that every person must come to, to encounter him. He is the way to God. He is the, the way and the truth and the life. There is no other way to ignore Jesus Christ well, you do that at your own peril and you come into great danger. He is the only one that can bring us salvation, as you well know. And so, Jesus asked his disciples way back in those early days of the gospel, what, what do men say and what do you say? And Peter was the one to answer, You, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, Blessed art thou, Peter, Simon Peter, because flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. Peter seemed to be right on the front of all the action. He was there, the only one, to get out of the boat and walk on the water. And we might criticize Peter for taking his eyes off of the Lord and beginning to sink into that water. But we have to admit, he's the only one that ever walked on water except for the Lord Jesus. And then he's the one to draw his sword when they come to take Jesus that night of the betrayal and the trial and the morning would be the crucifixion. And they come to with swords and spears to take Jesus. And Peter is the one who pulls out his sword to defend Jesus now, he wasn't a very good swordsman because he, he went after that one servant and all he did was cut off his ear. He did cut off his ear. And Jesus very graciously and kindly healed it and restored because that's not what he was about. <clears throat> and he told Peter to put his sword back up. But there was something about Peter that just kind of draws you to him as a character in the Scripture. He was the one who denied the Lord and went out and wept bitterly and then afterwards, discouraged, said to the rest of the disciples, I'm going back fishing again. And he went north to, <clears throat> to Galilee and got back in his fishing boat. And they went out, fished all night and didn't get any fish. In the morning, Jesus stood on the shore and called over the waves and said to them, 
have you caught anything? He said, no, we fished all night. Then he said, well, thrust your net on the right side of the boat. They did, and they brought up such a large amount that it took two boats to catch, to take all those fish in. Peter said, it's the Lord. And as impetuous as he was, he couldn't wait, and he dove into the to the lake and to the sea, and he, he swam to the shore. And there, the Lord graciously restored Peter, saying, Peter, do you love me? He gave him three opportunities to tell him personally that he loved him, right along with those three, three chances he'd had to deny him. And now he was able to say, yes, Lord, I love you. It was Peter who stood up in the day of Pentecost and preached that message that brought 3,000 people into the kingdom. Peter was the leader of, that, of the church. And his life is a tremendous testimony and example to us in so many ways. So now, here we are um, with First and Second Peter having been written by this apostle. And this is probably written, the Second Peter is probably written around the year between 65 and 68 after Christ. Now, Jesus would be crucified in the year 30. And Peter is writing in the year 65. So this is 35 years later. Peter will be, will be crucified, legend has it, upside down by the emperor Nero. And, so, and, and Nero died in the year 68. So we know that Peter had to, had to die before that. So he had to write this probably a year or two or three before. So let's say 65 A.D. That means that Peter has continued to serve the Lord and preach the gospel for 35 years since the Lord has ascended into heaven. He's now an old man, probably 70 <clears throat> or so years old. And the Lord has showed to him that his time is on the earth is now finished. It says there in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, um, in verse 14, if you just notice this verse, to begin, <clears throat> Peter says, Knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, speaking of his body, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. And one of the ways he was going to make sure that they would have these things to continue to study and review and, and consider was to write this, these letters that he wrote to us. Peter is aware now that his time is short, that, that soon he will go into the presence of the Lord. He's aware that his ministry is coming to an end. And so now he takes his pen and begins to write this letter. And so we have this last message to the churches from Peter the Apostle. He knew the Lord, he walked with the Lord, he was a disciple, faithful, and then he served the Lord and grew for those next 35 years until we come to this point. And here is the last part that Peter will have in the New Testament. To me, <clears throat> that really draws my interest. What was it then that Peter would write, that would give to us for the church that would be, obviously, he would write, the most important thing. If you know that your time is short and you don't have any time left, you're going to do what's most important. You're going to write what's most important. And so here's Peter writing this message. 
in the message of Second Peter, although he's warning about the false teachers that could come, his love for the truth, his love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and his love for the gospel is strong enough that he says, listen, be very careful because false teachers will come. But there's a reason to avoid the false teachers because they destroy and poison the church for what God really wants. And what is it that God really wants for his church? Well, let's look at, turn if you would to the end of the book, chapter 3 and verse 18. You may know this verse. You may have memorized it in Sunday school or on your own. On your own. But look at, therefore, verse 18 says, but, she, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His, the interest and thought and concern of, of Peter, even to the end, is to continue to grow in grace. God's favor and blessing and working in, in our lives individually, where we see God's hand at work because of His grace, because of His faithful working, we see God helping us. Somebody said that law is what you have to do for God. But grace is what God is doing for you. And when you are got a hold of God's grace, you see God's hand working and helping and leading and blessing and undertaking for you like doing things you can't do for yourself. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is still enamored with Jesus Christ and still growing in knowing him even though he walked with him all these years. And at 70 years old, his, his message is you need to continue to grow. Now, if that's the focus and that's the burden and that's the message, then that shows to us why warning about false teachers is so important because the false teachers are going to sidetrack you and detour you and turn you aside from truly Growing in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. There's a warning because growing, growing unto the fruit that God wants for our lives is so important. Now, turn back, if you would, to chapter 1, Second Peter. And notice that message is really there right from the beginning. The idea of growing in, in the life that God has given to us in Christ. Beginning in verse 1, if you would, and just follow with me for a few verses. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are giving unto, uh, given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. 
Notice there in verse 3, he says, God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The life that we receive through faith is a new and spiritual life, and our life is changed, and now we are born from on high, and we have eternal life, and we're beginning to live this life, and God's desire for us is to grow in such a way that we bear fruit. All life has fruit. All life that is truly growing will reproduce and bear fruit. Years ago, we had a lady in our church in Mexico give me a little seedling of a, of a lime tree. They use limes in Mexico um, for everything. You squeeze it on your taco, you squeeze it in your soup. My wife makes this wonderful limeade um, that is great in the desert there where it's so hot. Uh, it's used for everything. And so she gave us this little lime tree. I thought, well, wow, it's wonderful. Thank you. And it was probably this big and then the, then the, the sack, the, the bag with the dirt underneath. And So I took it to the backyard and dug a little hole right behind our kitchen window, took off the plastic, and I planted it, watered it a little bit, and then went to bed that night. I got up in the morning. I went outside to check for my first lime. There wasn't anything there. I thought, well, you know, it's just getting used to this new environment. I'll give it a day or two, and I'll water it again, and give it a little time. And so I came out the next day, looked for my lime, and still wasn't there. It took three years of watering that lime tree before I got the first lime. It needed to grow. And but but boy, that first limeade that we had off of our own tree. Freshly squeezed organic limes. Boy, was it good. And it began to grow more, and the branches got thicker, and eventually the trunk got to be about this thick around, and branches got thicker. And there was one year that recently that it had so many limes on there. I mean, I stopped counting at 400 limes. It probably had 1,000. And they were just, I mean, every day they would drop off the tree ripe, and you'd go out and pick them off the ground. I'd pick up 20, 30 limes off the ground. You see, in order for it to get to the place where it could have that many limes, it had to grow because that fruit was so heavy. It couldn't hold it until it was strong, until it had, those branches had grown thick and were able to sustain and and, and, and bear the, <clears throat> the nectar up to those limes that needed to be deposited there. I love that lime tree because those little beautiful balls full of juice, just like God had packaged them so you could make limeade and use them to squeeze in your tacos. They're great. But you see, God's desire is for us to bear fruit with the life that he's given to us, and so he wants us to grow because that brings blessing... Not only to us, uh, joy and, and, and excitement and encouragement when we see God working through us and in us, but it also brings blessing to others whose lives we can touch. And so, the idea here is that God has given us life, and then He wants us to grow so that we can bear fruit. And the growth comes especially there in verse 5. Because he said, 
chapter 1, verse 5, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity or love. There's eight virtues that Peter describes here, and we don't have time for the study. It's, an, it's a very interesting and very helpful study when you begin to look at these virtues. But Peter at, tells us to add on one after the other. This is the only place in the New Testament where we are specifically told what we're to add in to our lives in terms of the steps of our growth. And this is not something that we can get for ourselves, obviously. It's something that is, comes through Jesus Christ, and it's made available through Christ, and it's provided through him to us. We have all things in Christ. He said just there in verse 3, all things that pertain to life and godliness are given to us by his divine power. It comes from him, but we're to add it into our lives so that we choose to live a life of virtue rather than of sin and vice and those things that can really affect a life negatively. We're to grow. We're to add these things in. Grow spiritually, step by step. And that never ends. Whether we're a new believer at 10 or 15 years of age or whether we've been in the church for 50 years, we're to continue to grow spiritually so that the day would come when we can bear fruit Because notice there in verse 8, when he finishes that, he said, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we add these things to our life, we begin to grow and they will cause us, we we cannot be barren or unfruitful. And the word in Spanish is interesting. It it says, No os dejarán estar ociosos ni sin fruto. Excuse me, I just had to get a little Spanish in there. But um, it means they're literally lazy, unoccupied, similar to the idea of barren, not having any spiritual growth and activity to carry out to be barren. God doesn't have that plan for a believer. His plan for a believer is to grow in such a way that he really literally bears fruit in his life, spiritual fruit, fruit of impact in other lives to cause them to want to come to Christ as well. God wants us to grow and bear fruit. The means for that, for that growth he describes later in this same chapter. When we get down to the end, he says in verse 19, he describes the Word of God where that's where we find the the tools for our growth. Verse 19, he says, We also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts, knowing this first, no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. Prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so he points us to that place where we will find what we need to grow in the Scripture. Now, we're going to go briefly here. I don't want to 
linger too long there through the book. There's so much that we could go through. But, but notice in chapter 2, right after Peter mentions the scripture that we should pay heed to and pay attention to, right then he says in verse 1, but there were false prophets also among the people. Now he had just said, God gave the Scripture through holy men of God among the Jewish people in the Old Testament time. But the same time as God's holy men set aside for His service had been used to bring the Word of God, the same time there were false prophets among the people. There were those who would preach God's message in truth and actually were used to bring God's word and write his word in, in the scripture. And there were at the same time false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. And Peter doesn't say that this is a possibility. He says there will be false teachers. So you and I undoubtedly have met um, false teachers. We've run across false teachers. There may be some living in your town or in your neighborhood or close to your house. The other day, I was outside in front of the house we're renting in Thornton, and two girls came up, and they were just as friendly, well-dressed, and they said, well, so, hey, how are you today? We're, we're out here sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. We're from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we immediately had a difference of opinion. And I began to talk to them about some of their false teachings. They says, well, we've got to keep going. And they just moved along. There will be, Jesus said, false teachers who are teaching about God, teaching a false teaching that will lead men into, as it says here later, condemnation. And they even come to the point of denying the Lord that bought them with his blood. They deny that one who can save them. They're teaching about how people come to God and they deny the very one who can bring us to God. And so, but it says in verse 2, and, and we won't go long through here, but just verse 2 and 3. And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. We found in Mexico especially, that people began to complain about people who would go and knock on doors. Well, we did a lot of that in Mexico. We'd knock on doors. In fact, it was the Christians who first were the ones doing most of the knocking on doors in our city. And people were open and would listen to the gospel. But then the Jehovah's Witnesses began to grow and come in and, and, and multiply. And after a while, people got really tired of so many people coming to knock on their door that they began to speak badly about all these people who wanted to come. And here we were overrun by these false teachers. And so the way of truth was evil spoken of. But notice there also verse 3. And through covetousness, shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, that's making money, whose, and notice the last part, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Paul, Peter says, 
God's condemnation is on these who teach a false way. And their judgment is coming quickly. And God will bring terrible judgment on those who teach a false teaching other than that of Jesus Christ. Why? First of all, it turns people aside from the truth and salvation that's in Christ. But second, it confuses those believers who would desire to grow in Christ and serve Him. And so it's Peter's mind. You know, I can, I can almost see in my mind Peter the Apostle almost just preaching this with that old fire of the, of the old-time preachers with, with a, such a serious concern for these false teachers that, will, that are coming in. It's a, it's a very strong passage as you read through that second chapter of, of the condemnation that God will bring on them because of their corruption and their false teaching. It's very strong. Probably one of the strongest passages. You can almost see Peter, Peter fired up here and just, just going at these guys. But then he finishes warning because of the danger of the false teachers. And he comes to chapter 3. And notice, if you would, chapter 3, verse 1 now. There's a change. He says, this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. It's, in, chapter th- in chapter 3, Peter will use that word beloved four times. It's there in verse 1, it's in verse 8, it's in verse 14, and in verse 17. Beloved, beloved, beloved. It's, it's as if God has poured the love of Jesus Christ into the heart of this his servant, and that love is just overflowing. And as he, it's as if he's turned his eyes from thinking and looking toward those false teachers who are coming. He turns them back to those who know Christ and follow him. And he says with that great love in his heart, Oh, beloved. And so what's written here in this last chapter is written with special love of God in the heart of the apostle for, for the believers, for us. And his desire now is to stir up their minds so that they will remember and keep in mind the truths that God has taught and walk in the truths that God has taught us so that we can grow. And he says there, I want to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. I don't know about you, but I seem to forget so quickly things I've learned in church. I forget, forgive me, I forget sometimes some of the things I preached on. Next week, what did you preach on last week? Um, let me think about that. Sometimes it's hard to remember. We, we tend to forget things. We get busy with other things. We forget the things that we've learned in church and heard. And we're, we're in church, we're focused, and we're learning, and, you know, but then life gets in the way, and sometimes we forget. And so Peter realizes we, we need to be stirred up to remember We need to remember and find that way to keep these things in our mind. Verse 2 says that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. These need to be constantly in our mind to choose because as we have in our mind the word of God, we're thinking and meditating and considering God's purpose and God's word and God's will in our decisions 
That's where our growth be- will come from. And he says also, knowing this other danger, verse 3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And this is the warning in the last days, which I think in which we are living now, scoffers will come who will make fun of the truth of the gospel. We see that all around us. We see a disdain for the things of God. We see an animosity. People are antagonistic against the gospel. The whole mindset of our country has changed where at one time we embraced the gospel and a country church like, like, like yours here was the backbone of this country. And now people are, in the, especially in the cities, turning away, rejecting, criticizing, condemning the Christians. We see it all around us. Because in the last days, scoffers have come who are unwilling to yield their hearts and lives to Christ and want to continue walking in their own desires and lusts, want to be able to do whatever they feel and whatever they desire, and their conscience is fighting against them so they can't really enjoy their sin because their conscience comes against them. And so they look around to see who's the one that's causing this bad vibe in their conscience, if you allow me to say it that way. And they go against the Christians because we've been taught in our society it's the socialization, it's the preachers, it's the Christians who are causing us to feel bad about things that we shouldn't feel bad about. No, it's not the Christians. It's the Word of God and it's a conscience that God has placed in us. It's the Holy Spirit that contends with us because He wants to bring us to to God for our salvation and for eternal life. But they'll fight against this and they'll scoff so that they can continue to work, to walk in their own lust. And so they, they, they come as scoffing, making fun and walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? The attitude is, well, it comes out in different forms. I don't know if many of you might remember when, and I saw this in, Years ago, on the front of Time magazine, came out and said, God is dead. God is no longer involved. He's not present. He's dead. He's, he's out. And we threw off God from, from our thinking in, this, in our society, in our country. Um, there, there, he's not coming back. He's not, he's not here. One, one time I was in the city of Hermosillo. There's, a, there's a, uh, a hill right in the middle of town, which has a road up to the top, and there's radio towers and television towers on top, and it's also a lookout, and many people go up there to see, and it's kind of like a lover's leap place where you go up and, and see the, the city. And I would walk and hike up there. One time I was walking, and I kind of stood out as that I'm not Mexican. I'm you know, a little American. And, 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 and there were some teenagers up there who were drinking. And there was painted on the, some rocks on the side of the top of the hill there, Cristo viene. Christ is coming. Some Christians had painted, Christ is coming. And this t- 
teenagers saw me and they began to say out loud, real loud, Hey, Cristo viene! I think they could tell I was a Christian. And they began to make fun of that idea. Oi, que Cristo viene! And they were laughing and making fun. They were mocking the idea of the promise of Jesus' return. I just kept walking and went back down. I thought, how sad, because if you make fun of that reality, you're not going to prepare for it. You're not going to get your heart right and come to the Savior to be ready for when He does come. And when He comes, He'll come as a thief in the night when nobody's ready, nobody's looking. They're not, there won't be time to prepare. You won't be able to have time to run down to your local church and ask the pastor, you know, I, I, I want to get saved now. There's not going to be time. And so they, they scoff and they mock at the promise of his return. And they say, where is the promise of his return? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And the idea is things continue as they always have been and they always will continue and it's never, nothing is ever really going to change. God doesn't really intervene in life, the life of men basically the idea is now we're in charge. And much of what is going on in our society with global warming and, and, and all the control of our environment and the control of our planet is, comes from the idea not that we have to take care of what God gave us, but that we are in charge now of, of our planet. We are in God's place. We're the ones to take care of the, the planet. Well... Actually, God is the one to take care of our planet, and he's not going to let it fall apart. He's in control, and he will sustain it. However, it says in verse 5, For this they willingly are ignorant of. By the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, really, there's three simple things that he's saying there, though the language might be a little more difficult to follow. But he's saying they're willingly choosing to ignore three things. Those who make fun and those who ignore Jesus Christ's return. There's three things. One is that... By the word of God, the earth and the heavens were created. Verse 5. By the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. That was when there was the canopy of water and the water came to, to the earth and the whole creation. The word of God brought about creation. God is the creator. He started all of this. He's in control of all of this. And without him, nothing exists that exists. So evolution is taught so strongly and they're so passionate about evolution because if they recognize a creator, they have to recognize their responsibility to that creator. And so there's no way we're going to recognize anything that has to do with intelligent design or creation. It's all evolution. It all happened by its own and now we're in control. Secondly, verse 6, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. That's the flood. It's happened in approximately the year, approximately 4,000 years ago. 
God overflowed the entire earth with water to destroy the man that He had created because his sin had become so great. He turned his heart so far from God. And so God intervened and actually God brought judgment on this earth through the flood. Now, that's not a popular thought. Because the reality that God is a God who will bring judgment. Yes, God loves us and God is a God of love. God is love, but God is also holy and just and he brings judgment. And so the reality of a flood that brought judgment was hard to consider. And then third, the third reality is that they ignore, first, that God's a creator, second, that God brought judgment in the flood, and third, but the heavens, verse 7, the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of godly men. The third reality is the day is coming when God will bring judgment in fire. This time not in water, but in fire. Reality of the coming judgment. So God does intervene. God does bring judgment, and that judgment will come. Now Peter says, let me, let me finish here quickly. Thank you for your patience. He says, we as believers should not ignore, they choose to ignore these things, but we as believers should not ignore three things. That's in verse 8, 9, and 10. In verse 8 he says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, what he's saying is, God is outside of time. And he looks on all of history at once. Time is something God created for man. In the beginning, in the creation, the evening and the morning were the first day, and God created days and time for man. Somebody said that God created time so that everything wouldn't happen at once. Well, that's good. I can't handle everything at once. I need to do one thing at a time. And God created time for man, but the time is coming, and the book of Revelation says that time will be no more. God will do away with time and will be in eternity, which is the ever-present now and forever in God's presence. So God is outside of time and he sees everything at once. And this is kind of hard to, for us to conceive because we're so limited and finite. But here he is saying, for God, one day is like a thousand years. He is able to do in one day what it would take all of men to do in a thousand years. He can move and create and work and do so many things in one day. And yet at the same time, a thousand years, this is one day, because he can see the span of history of a thousand years and see it as if it were one day. He's in control of all of these things. Now, the world was created in the year approximately 4004 before Christ. So from the creation to the time of Christ's coming was 4,000 years. And from Christ's coming till today, we're in 2015, was another approximately 2,000 years. So the world is approximately 6,019 years old. 6,000 years. So if you're thinking a little bit like I am right now, a thousand years is one day, that's in God's sight as if it were six days. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus came, and people would scoff and say, where's the promise of his coming? 
It's been 2,000 years and He hasn't come. Oh yeah, but He knows the time of His coming. But for Him, a thousand years as a day, in God's sight, it's as if it were two days since He came. He might decide to wait one more day. He knows when it's time. It's not the time that's the issue. It's the purpose. Because later it says there in verse 15, well, we'll see that later in verse, actually the next verse, verse 9. The second thing we should not ignore, that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. God always keeps His promises. As some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, it's not about the time. It's about God's desire that men come to repentance and to bring salvation. God is more focused on His purpose than on the time. And I thank the Lord for His patience. You see, if Jesus had come 41 years ago, I was not saved. But He waited and He was patient and He allowed for me to come to know the Lord when I was 15 years old. Thank the Lord for His patience. There may be some here who have come to know the Lord in the last number of few years. I know of people who have been saved in Mexico in recent years and they're so thankful for God's patience. See, God is patient so that men will come to repentance. That's why He's waiting. It's not about His time. It's about His purpose to save His love. And then, and then the third thing we should not ignore is verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And the third truth that he doesn't want us to ignore is the day of the Lord will come. And when it comes, it will come as a thief in the night when you're not expected. Some years ago, we had had parked our Tacoma. We have a small Tacoma pickup truck that parked in front of our house in Mexico and we went to bed one Saturday night. We got up in the morning and literally asked me, and she said, did you leave the hood of the truck up last night? I said, no, I didn't. Why? Well, because it's up. So I went out and looked and somebody had helped themselves to our battery. Just cut off the cables. and During the night, there had been a party a few blocks a block away and there was a lot of noise and I think they took advantage of all that noise to open our hood and I was sound asleep when somebody was getting into our truck. They took that, they got into the truck inside, they stole a flashlight, and they actually stole a little Bible that I had in my in my my truck. I thought, wow, this thief is a Christian. He took a Bible. Or maybe he'll become a Christian. And if he does, it'll be worthwhile. I hope he reads it. You know, if he's gonna take it, well, I hope he reads it. And but the point was that we were so sound asleep we had no idea when that thief came. He just middle of the night. And so it will be to the majority of people around us and in our society and country when he, when he returns it will be as a thief in the night. When he comes he comes suddenly and quickly and he will accomplish his purpose. Now this passage is actually describing the coming of the day of the Lord which is an extended period. It covers the time of the rapture and the tribulation and the, and the millennium and, the, and the, finally the day of judgment. 
And that's a whole other study to, to get into, but it's, it's a day when finally the day will come when this earth will be dissolved and everything that's in it will be burned up. This beautiful church building that you have here will be burned up. The house that you worked so hard to buy will be, will be burned. That new car, it will be gone. Everything that's here will be gone. Nothing will be left. We can't take anything with us. Only thing we can take is our personal relationship with him and others with whom we've shared the gospel. See, you're allowed to take other people with you by sharing the gospel. But that's it. We can't take anything else. Our society is so focused on things. But all those things will be destroyed. They'll be gone. And this passage teaches us that we ought rather to set our hearts and minds on Christ and on living holy lives and on bearing fruit. And so Peter ends this book with that verse we saw there in verse 18. He says, But grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. That, that growing, the personal growth in Christ that bears fruit is what will, will, we will be able to take with us when we go. Thank you for your attention this morning. Let's close in prayer and pass on to the invitation. Our Father, thank you for the word which you gave to us through your servant Peter. And thank you for the message there of growing in Christ and adding to our faith those virtues which will make us able to bear strong fruit for you. Thank you for the warning against false teachers around us who can turn us aside from the true path that you've set for us. We thank you for the warning, the prediction of the times that we're living in when scoffers will come and will not believe, will make fun of that truth of the, of the Lord's coming. Lord, we pray that you would use your word in our hearts today to Focus our priorities, those things that are pleasing to you and have eternal value. And we pray, Lord, that if there are any here whose hearts are not prepared, who are not ready for his coming, Lord, that you would touch that heart and draw them by your grace and love to yourself and bring them to salvation. And we pray that each of us, Lord, would have a heart who's, that is set not on material things and on the affairs of this life, but in preparing for that day when you will come for us. We might live in a way that pleases you. I pray that you bless this invitation and bless as we close the service today. And pray in Jesus' name. Amen.